Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the fifth and final episode of our series focused on legal challenges construction contractors face in the federal procurement space. In this episode, Sarah Nasiri and Anna Wright, attorneys with Paliro Maza's Labor and Employment and Government Contracts Practice Groups, discuss best practices for construction contractors when preparing subcontracting plans and maintaining their OFCCP compliance. Before we begin the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sarah Nasseri, and I'm joined here today by a colleague of mine, Anna Wright, who's an attorney in the government contracts group. I'm an attorney in the labor and employment group, and today we're presenting on considerations in subcontracting plans and OFCCP compliance specific to construction contractors. As many of you may know, obviously, being a federal contractor requires you to meet certain obligations and goals, and our goal is to sort of go through each of those goals and and outline the steps that businesses will have to take to ensure that you're meeting those obligations, which at the end of the day, just encourage economic growth for disadvantaged and minority groups. So whether it's in your subcontracting plans or in your personnel activity and, and, you know, when it comes time to OFCCP compliance, hopefully, you know, the takeaways from this webinar are sort of the processes and protocols to take to ensure compliance. So just a little bit about myself. My name is Sarah Nasseri, and I, again, am an attorney in the Labor and Employment Practice Group. So I advise employers on a range of workplace-related matters, focusing specifically on legal and regulatory compliance. So anything from, you know, OFCCP audits to developing your AAP to ensuring compliance with basic affirmative action obligations. We do this and much, much more in the Labor and Employment Practice Group. I'm joined today by Anna Wright, a colleague of mine in the Government Contracting Group, and I'll let her introduce herself and start the show here. Hi, so my name is Anna Wright. I work in the GovCon Group. I'm an attorney there. Broadly speaking, I do a lot of small business work and a lot of subcontracting plan specific work. So that's work with large businesses, primarily in in the subcontracting plan area but it still relates to small businesses. I also do some cybersecurity work, among other things. So kind of a jack of all trades over here. Of course, Polara Maza, we are a business law firm. We work with both government contractors and just garden variety commercial businesses of all different sizes. We provide services in many different areas and are happy to provide more information if you would like it. Just going to jump right into it here. So I would imagine that many folks on the line are large businesses, or maybe you're small businesses who would like to know about subcontracting plans, or maybe you're what's like a medium business. So maybe you're small under some NAICS codes, maybe you're large under others. But these basic concepts are valuable for everyone to know because a lot of government contractors at some point are going to bump into subcontracting plans, especially in construction contracting. I have, I've noticed it happens a lot. That's where most of my subcontracting plan work comes from. So a subcontracting plan is essentially a commitment to make a quote-unquote good faith effort to subcontract certain percentages of 
subcontractable work to small businesses. There are a total of 15 requirements that have to be addressed in contracting plans. They're in FAR 19.704A. A subcontracting plan can be contract specific, or you can have a master plan, which is where you basically have like a template and it contains everything, but the specific percentage goals of dollars to be subcontracted, because that's going to change based on each contract and subcontractors that are available to you, et cetera. So other than small, or in other words, large, businesses must have subcontracting plans. When a solicitation contemplates award of a construction contract that will exceed, is projected to exceed, however you want to put that, $1.5 million. For non-construction contracts, it's $750,000. But you know, for our purposes here today, we're going to focus on the $1.5 million figure. So we say contractors have to make that quote-unquote good faith effort. Well, what does that mean? It's kind of a nebulous term, right? So when we say good faith effort, what that means is kind of the overall, the totality of the contractor's efforts with respect to their subcontracting show good faith. And in that citation there, there are a bunch of specific examples that can show good faith. So that can include things like breaking your subcontractable work into smaller component pieces so that small businesses can participate more easily can be conducting market research, whether that's you know through putting out polls, polling the business community in your area, whether it's through local small business assistance, kind of cooperatives, organizations, through SBA, through the Dynamic Small Business Search, it's DSBS, stuff like that can be as relevant to construction contracting, assisting small businesses with bonding and, and other such requirements and, and so forth. And notably, even if you don't meet your specific goal in one socioeconomic category. Like say you projected that you wanted to subcontract 5% of your total subcontractable dollars to hub zone businesses. But oops, you only got 3%. But you subcontracted 8% of your total subcontractable dollars to women-owned small businesses. You exceeded your goal and you wanted to subcontract 5% to both categories, right? So women-owned and hub zone. So since you exceeded your goal in women-owned, even though you didn't quite hit it in HUBZone, that can count as a good faith effort. So it's not necessarily super rigid. The goal is really to make sure that you're maximizing opportunity, you being the large business, that you're maximizing opportunities for small businesses to participate, even if sometimes the exact businesses you want to subcontract with maybe don't work out. The goal is to make a good faith effort. So what is a good faith effort not? Well, fortunately, the FAR has all kinds of guidance on that, too, and as do SBA's regulations, by the way. So a good faith effort is not if you're willfully or intentionally failing to perform or if you're frustrating performance of your subcontracting plan. Yeah, that's not a good faith effort. That's not going to fly with SBA. And again, the FAR has several helpful examples of how you could basically make the opposite of a good faith effort. It could be failing to designate and maintain an SBLO, that's a small business liaison officer, or, you know, whatever you call that person, failure to maintain records or quote unquote, otherwise demonstrate procedures adopted to comply with the plan, plan being subcontracting plan, failure to pay your small business subcontractors on time in accordance with the agreements that you have with them, and so forth. Basically, just anything that's going to actively hinder you from complying with your plan. If you're hindering yourself from complying with your plan, SBA is not going to like that. You might be subject to liquidated damages, which can rack up 
pretty quickly. So how would you show a good faith effort, right? Because you want to make sure that if SBA does decide to audit or, as they call it, review your records, what do you need to show them that will show that you are making this good faith effort? The easiest way to show SBA that you are making that good faith effort is to create a written manual, not just verbal, well, we should probably do it this way. Something written will help a lot in proving to SBA that yes, you are making that good faith effort. Yes, you are really trying to involve small business subcontractors here. And this is especially true given the changes to the FAR that put bigger quote unquote teeth in the compliance requirements. Previously, the FAR was a little nebulous on the subject of how you would make a good faith effort and what failure to make a good faith effort looks like. But as of, what was it, September 21st of last year, the FAR was updated to contain more specific information regarding one, what a good faith effort is, two, what it's not, and three, what happens if you don't make a good faith effort. So now FAR 19.7 has a lot more helpful information. Of course, that information was available in SBA's regulations as well before it was in the FAR. But now that it's in the FAR, it's a little bit easier because everything is in one place now instead of you having to ping pong back and forth between the FAR and SBA's regulations and so forth. So this manual that we very strongly recommend you have should address a lot of different items. I know it looks like a long list here, but frankly, it is not as daunting as it seems because a lot of these things are logically related to each other, right? So if you go down the list there, you have your covered supplies slash services. That would be like what's subcontractable, right? Program administration and SBLO responsibilities, that all kind of plays into like the overarching goals and how you're going to accomplish them. Evaluation, record keeping, maintenance, like all of that kind of comes down to what do you have in writing? Self-certifications, again, writing, employee training, a lot of this stuff really kind of boils down to the nuts and bolts of subcontracting plan anyway. So it's just good to have this stuff written down, especially in manual form, because it helps you, one, comply with your subcontracting plan, which is important, and two, show SBA that yes, you are compliant. So there are some important items that SBA will require in the event of an audit or review. One of those items is the vendor self-certification form. You have to obtain written representations of size or status, both really, from your small business contractors. You can use SBA's preferred format uh, for their self-certification form that's available on their website. Or if a small business is relying on SAM, their SAM registration to kind of certify that they are a small business, they also need to represent to you in writing that their SAM is current, accurate, and complete for the purposes of this subcontract. So the goal there is to ensure that, you know, when you look at the subcontractor SAM, that it's right and that nothing has happened between whenever they last updated their SAM and when you're awarding the subcontract or negotiating with this subcontractor, nothing has happened that would change their size or status. You just want to make sure that it's accurate. The representation of their small business status is based on the NAICS code you assign to their subcontract. And that was kind of a sidebar there. The NAICS code that you assign to the subcontract doesn't necessarily have to be the same as the prime contract. Is it often the same? Yes. Does it have to be like absolutely 100% of the time? No, because sometimes the component littler pieces of work that you can subcontract out might be a different NAICS code than the 
primary NAICS code that's, of course, assigned to your prime contract. The vendor self-certification form is referenced here, whether that's SBA's form or something else, can be used if you don't have a subcontract or some other written agreement where the subcontractor makes representations to you. So if your subcontract doesn't have like a specific section for making a representation as to size and status, then you would have something else. Although, frankly, a lot of large businesses will just integrate that self-certification form right into their subcontracts, or they'll have a database of small businesses, essentially, and then they have like an annual update or kind of like SAM, really, but a business-specific one. Also, just a note to keep in mind here, independent verification of status is required for hubs on small businesses, and it's strongly recommended for all other socioeconomic statuses. That's including just like, quote, unquote, vanilla small businesses. So to independently verify hub zone status, generally, you would just go to DSBS, you would input the subcontractor's business name, their cage code, however you want to search, and check to see if they show up in DSBS as a hub zone small business. Now, that said, there have been some issues with DSBS recently. I've actually had this happen a couple times where I've had a small business client who is definitely HubZone certified, and I have the emails. I, I have them in my hands. It says, you are a HubZone certified small business, but they don't show up in DSBS for whatever reason. So in that case, if they don't show up in DSBS, but they insist that they are HubZone certified, you can contact SBA to ask and verify. And in fact, you are supposed to. So just that's something to keep in mind as well. So the fact that they don't show up in DSBS doesn't necessarily mean that they are not what they say they are, but it's it's something that could raise some flags for you that you would definitely want to follow up with. So another important item that you will need to have is your subcontract justification form. For this, there is no required format, but the purpose of the form, so the information it will need to contain, is to ensure that you are maintaining the documentation required under that long citation. That's the subcontracting plan clause in the FAR. It applies to solicitations for subcontracts above the Simplet acquisition threshold, and it requires you to document whether each type of small business, that's each type that's in your subcontracting plan, was solicited for the subcontract, and if they weren't, why weren't they? Basically, this is, again, getting back to that good faith effort issue and showing how you did certain things. And Again, the, the fact that maybe you didn't end up being able to award subcontract to a particular type of small business doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't make a good faith effort. If you can show SBA, I solicited all of these different types of small businesses, but none of them responded or none of them had the technical capability. And I really can't break this down any further so that they could participate. That will help in terms of showing that you made a good faith effort. So that's what the subcontract justification form is for to just kind of provide that real-time verification that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Now, another important item you will need to have is the CEO letter. This is helpful and, in fact, required because it expresses your company's policy to support your subcontracting program and maximize your utilization of small businesses. And in particular, it shows your company's commitment to your subcontracting program from the top of your organization. Because the goal is you want to show buy-in from the C-suite, essentially, and make sure that it's not just something that some little component of your business is doing. This is something that is understood and endorsed by like company leadership at the highest level. And that is something that SBA will want to see in an audit. 
because they'll want they'll want to see evidence of that buy-in from your company leadership. So how are you supposed to comply with all of these things? You'll want to make sure that you submit your ISR, that's your individual subcontract report, and SSR, that's your summary subcontract report, on time via ESRS. ESRS is the Electronic Subcontract Reporting System. Previously, you had to submit these forms on paper or use a special PDF form that SBA had for a really long time. But now you just go into ESRS and you type in your information into the nice little online form there. You don't have to bother with all of this PDF stuff. It does require the same information that the previous SBA forms required, just to be clear. It's just how you upload it. And to ensure that you are submitting your reports on time, your manual should define your reporting procedures and timelines and responsibilities just so that everybody understands when and how these reports should be made. And we do have a question. If the prime contractor is a small business and not required to develop a small business subcontracting plan, is the small business subcontracting plan a required flowdown to large business subcontractors? Generally speaking, yes. I can drill down on that a little bit more for you afterward. That's a little janky, but I can get with you afterwards to discuss that a little bit more. Continuing on this compliance tips here, any discrepancies between your reports or negative trends in your reported data? So for instance, if you started out meeting all your goals and then you just kind of slacked off a little bit, that might trigger an SBA audit because SBA does review these reports and they'll want to know why something has kind of fallen off. Now, SBA does also just perform audits more or less randomly in addition to these discrepancy-triggered audits. So the fact that you are selected for an audit doesn't necessarily mean that you did something wrong. Just to <laughs> alleviate any fears there, being selected for an audit doesn't always mean you've done the bad thing. It just means SBA might have identified a discrepancy or they just randomly selected you. It happens. It doesn't mean that you're bad. So other things you should do to keep your compliance up to par, make sure that your management and your sales and purchasing personnel are all on the same page for your goal development and attainment. That's important because you don't want conflicting messages coming from different components of your business. So if management is saying one thing and sales is saying something else and purchasing is saying another thing entirely, well, how are you supposed to know who to believe, right? If you're SBA or if you're a small business contractor, it's going to be hard to figure out what the messaging is. So you want to make sure that your messaging is consistent and that internally you're all on the same page so that internally you're not butting heads about how things should be working. And kind of to that point, you should hold regular internal meetings and monitor plan performance to catch any shortcomings in plan execution or, or what have you as early as you possibly can. Getting involved in conferences, trade associations, PTACs, that type of thing. Like I mentioned earlier, small business assistance kind of programs, they're often on the state and local level. SBA has local offices that you can talk to. There are all kinds of ways that you can get involved with small businesses. And just as kind of patting yourself on the back a little bit, but also showing to SBA that you're making your effort, make sure to document any of your mentoring successes and just your success stories in general with small businesses. Because not only does that give people the warm fuzzies, it'll also show your good faith effort. So two birds, one stone. We have another question. Does a first tier subcontractor need to have the same goals as the prime or do they develop their own goals? So a first tier subcontractor doesn't necessarily need to have the same goals as the prime. Now, agencies do have their own like minimum goals for small business subcontracting. Generally, it's between 3 and 5% for all the different types of small businesses. 
So you'll want to comply with those minimum goals, regardless of whether you're, you know, a prime or a first year sub or what have you. But the other thing is you need to make sure that your goals are attainable. So maybe a first tier subs goal wouldn't be attainable in the same way a primes would be. So maybe the prime can subcontract, gosh, I don't know, 10% to a service disabled veteran owned small business. But the first tier sub can only subcontract 5%. That's okay. It doesn't necessarily mean anybody's doing anything wrong. Really, it, you just want to make sure that you're, you're making that good faith effort and you're trying to comply with the agency's minimum goals, at least. We have another question. What is the dollar threshold of contract amount for small businesses to have to implement a subcontracting plan? So small businesses don't have to have subcontracting plans. That said, your size, for purposes of subcontracting plans, your size will be assessed based on the NAICS code of the solicitation in question. So if you are large under the NAICS code of the solicitation that you're going for, then you would generally need to make a subcontracting plan. There's some nuance there sometimes, but as a general rule, if you're large under the applicable NAICS code, then yeah, you're going to need to make a subcontracting plan, assuming the total amount of the contract is over $1.5 million for construction. So it's less a specific dollar threshold for small businesses and more a question of, are you small under the applicable NAICS code? So I mentioned before how SBA will audit or quote unquote review your compliance sometimes. And there are a couple of different ways SBA will do that. Only more than a couple, as you can see there. They can do a subcontracting program compliance review, which is like a very comprehensive review of your full subcontracting program. It can be a performance review, which is subcontract achievement on just the contract by contract basis via these reporting systems, i.e. ESRS. It can be a subcontracting orientation and assistance review, which is a physical visit to a contractor's facility, which, of course, because we're in a pandemic, the physical visit is going to be a little different. It might be over Zoom. And there can be follow-up reviews. So say maybe SBA identified an issue during one of these reviews, then they would want to follow up with you later to make sure that you've solved the issue. SBA does have compliance review checklists that will require you to answer questions about your subcontracting program, your performance, trends, et cetera, et cetera. So you can view those online and see like what SBA will be after during a review. They'll request a number of supporting documents, including that, that laundry list there. We've already talked about most of those. So yeah, that's, that's helpful to have before you have a review. I have a follow-up question. If we are a women-owned small business, we do not need this contracting plan. Generally speaking, no, you will not. If you are a small business, you don't need this contracting plan. Site visits, I'm just going to kind of blaze through this real quick here. So the site visits will usually go one to two days. Again, can be connected virtually given our circumstances. SBA will want to meet with stakeholders, the small business liaison officer, managers, et cetera. And again, they're going to be looking for these good faith efforts that we've been talking about. You'll want to prepare in advance, put yourself through a mock audit using those checklists. And if you critically assess yourself during your mock audit, you should be in pretty good shape generally for an SBA audit. So what happens after an SBA audit or review? If you receive a marginal or unacceptable rating during that review, SBA is going to require you to submit a corrective action plan. You submit the plan to SBA or to both SBA and the agency that conducted the compliance review. Just as the sidebar there, SBA can delegate authority to conduct a compliance review. And SBA has delegated authority on several occasions, the most notable being delegation to DCMA. And DCMA does most of the reviews for DOD contracts. Failure to submit 
or adhere to your corrective action plan is considered a quote-unquote material breach of your subcontracting plan and can be grounds for those liquidated damages that we have discussed, which are not fun. We don't want to do that. And again, you know, SBA will conduct a follow-up to check on your progress with your corrective action plan. If everything is all peachy, you'll be good, but it's better to avoid this marginal or unacceptable rating from the outset by complying to the, as much as you possibly can. SBA's report will go to your administrative contracting officer, and that can reflect negatively on you for future procurements, just as a heads up. So with that, I will hand it over to Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. So I'm going to sort of transition into discussing of CCP compliance and, you know, those tedious <laughs> obligations under the OFCCP regulations, which set out equal employment opportunity and affirmative action obligations in government contracting. So the first thing is, you know, I'm sure many of you either know, have had contact with, or have had the unfortunate <laughs> experience of undergoing an OFCCP audit, but the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs is a subdivision within the Department of Labor. And it's basically sort of the government contractor's EEOC, right? So it's the agency that is responsible for ensuring that employers who do business with the federal government, so federal contractors, are complying with the laws and regulations requiring non-discrimination. The OFCCP's mission, so, you know, essentially their goal, and I'm not going to go read this verbatim, but the OFCCP's mission is to protect workers, promote diversity, and enforce the law. So they're responsible for ensuring that federal contractors are complying with the legal requirements to take affirmative action and not discriminate on the basis of a series of protected categories, which include race, color, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, national origin, disability, and or status as a protected veteran. So, you know, obviously they are the enforcement agency and they are, you know, the agency that is responsible for issuing those audit letters and if need be, working with government contractors to ensure that they're complying with, you know, affirmative action obligations. So we'll go through some of those different requirements and obligations. There are some nuances and differences specific to construction contractors. There are some requirements that don't apply to construction contractors. So we'll, we'll kind of go through everything as quickly as possible here. By way of background, I, I just wanted to sort of include a little side on what the OFCCP looks like now and who's leading the OFCCP. Obviously, as a new administration comes in, so does sort of a new director within the OFCCP. As soon as the Biden administration got sworn in last year, we had a change of leadership in the OFCCP. Currently leading the OFCCP is Director Jenny Yang. She's formerly a plaintiff's attorney. She was appointed to chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, before coming to the OFCCP. So obviously someone who is very much well-versed in sort of these equal employment opportunity and non-discrimination, discriminatory practices and obligations. So she's certainly not new to any of this. She was formerly a plaintiff's attorney, so we can assume that she's going to sort of take that approach and stance as it comes to sort of her leadership style and position. It's worth noting that during her time at EEOC, she did introduce and sort of spearheaded the requirement for employers to disclose paid data on EEO-1 reports. So with that, we also anticipate a focus on pay equity and compensation discrimination. 
And really all this to say, you know, obviously the OFCCP has seen an increase sort of enforcement and, and settlements and monetary settlements that they brought in over the years. But we can sort of expect that that momentum will not change and will likely continue and, and probably increase under the leadership of, of Director Yang. So just something to be aware of and, and something to note that there really is going to be probably a different stance and a, and a greater emphasis, especially on compensation discrimination, you know, during her tenure. So the OFCCP administers and enforces three laws, and we'll go into each one specifically as it relates to construction contractors. But in brief, first is the Executive Order 11246. So this is essentially the law that prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and national origin. So this sort of encompasses the majority of those protected categories that we discussed. Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, also known as Section 503, just in short, this is the one that's focused on prohibiting employment discrimination on the basis of disability. So this is where federal contractors are required to take affirmative action to employ and advance employment for qualified individuals with disabilities. So this is where that self-ID form, Section 503 form comes into play and so forth. And then the last one is the Vietnam Era Veterans Readjustment Assistance Act of 1974, better known as VEVRA. And this prohibits employment discrimination against protected veterans. And again, this also includes the self-ID forms that we'll talk about a little bit later. But these are sort of the three laws. So these are the laws that the OFCCP administers and enforces. And under each law, we'll talk about in a little bit. There's going to be various obligations and requirements that contractors need to be aware of. So this is a little handy dandy chart that I always like to sort of use and and point clients to just because there are a lot of different monetary thresholds and just, you know, general jurisdictional thresholds, which get triggered depending on the law in question. Right. So. Executive Order 11246, Section 503, and VEVRA have different thresholds with regard to, you know, when they get invoked and also whether or not there is an obligation to develop an affirmative action plan or an AAP. So for purposes of construction contractors, if you look under Executive Order 11246 on the top left there, basic coverage under EO 11246 for construction contractors is any number of employees and contracts valued at more than $10,000. So this is a pretty low threshold. I'm going to assume that the majority of contractors are going to fall within that bucket. And if you do, then you have an obligation to at least meet the basic components and requirements under EO 11246. Now, you also, as a construction contractor, have the obligation to meet what we call these 16 specifications under EO11246, which are sort of just these 16 different measures and protocols that the OFCCP has laid out with regard to affirmative action obligations with those specific protected categories. So almost certain (laughs) that the majority of construction contractors are going to be responsible for complying with EO11246 at the very least. Now, if you go down to Section 503, you'll see that that monetary threshold 
goes up, right? So goes up a little bit, but you know, enough to make a difference there. So any number of employees plus contract valued at more than 15,000. Now the difference with section 503 in VEVRA is that there is a trigger for AAP coverage. So while you don't necessarily have that trigger under EO 11246, if you are a construction contractor and you have 50 plus employees and then the equivalent monetary threshold, depending on the law, you are also responsible for developing an AAP under Section 503 or VEVRA. So we'll talk a little bit as, as far as what obligations are included within an AAP because it is sort of a tedious process. But you know, if you quickly scan these jurisdictional thresholds, you know, I can likely almost guarantee that a majority of contractors, you know, and especially construction contractors on this call, you're going to have to meet, if not the AAP coverage, at least the basic coverage under each of these laws. And so it's very important to sort of be aware of what those obligations are and also to stay aware of what employee threshold you're at and what monetary threshold you're at, because depending on that, your obligations may differ. So let's jump into Executive Order 11246. And then I know we're sort of limited in time, so I'll quickly scan these. But basically, EO 11246 applies to the, you know, that bigger list of protected categories. And it applies to federal construction contractors who meet one of the following contract thresholds. So as we talked about, it's either a direct or a federally assisted construction contract or subcontract over $10,000 or two or more contracts or subcontractors of less than 10,000 but you know when added together in aggregate total more than $10,000. You can also have a construction contract or subcontract of over $10,000 with a federal non-construction contractor subcontractor but that construction contract is necessary in whole or in part to the performance of that non-construction contractor subcontract. So basically if you fall within any of those sort of four categories, and, and as you can tell, they're they're applied pretty broadly. So they're probably going to capture a lot of different contractors and contracts. You are going to have to meet the obligations of Executive Order 11246. Next is the Section 503 requirements. And again, this is with regard to individuals with disabilities. So for Section 503, this applies to federal construction contractors with a direct government contract of more than $15,000, but does not apply to federally assisted construction contracts. So there's a difference here where we saw Executive Order 11246 had sort of a broader scope of applicability. Section 503 is a little bit more narrow, but the monetary threshold is also increased. So Assuming that you're covered by Section 503, you're also responsible for making reasonable accommodations to individuals who request such accommodations, especially those with disabilities, unless you can demonstrate that the accommodation would impose an undue hardship or burden. Obviously, very similar to the ADA, right, for those who are familiar with the Americans with Disabilities Act. So it sort of runs parallel to the ADA, but the Section 503 is specific to federal contractors. And just sort of a practice tip on this is if you are required to comply with Section 503, it is definitely imperative that you document any and all reasonable accommodation requests and determinations that you're making. I mean, we advise this for anyone and any employer, even if you're not a federal contractor, but especially in this case, 
because the OFCCP has Section 503 focus reviews as part of their audit gambit that they are now pushing and promoting. If you are subject to a Section 503 focus review, which is essentially an audit that strictly looks at your Section 503 compliance, the first thing they're going to look at is whether or not you have a reasonable accommodation policy. And the next thing that they're going to look at and look for is what sort of dispositions you've been making for people who have been requesting reasonable accommodations. So very important to A, have a policy in place, whether it's in the handbook or separate and apart from your handbook, but also make sure that you are documenting any and all requests that come in and the dispositions and determinations that you make from those requests. And then the last law of FEVRA. So this law, as we talked about, requires contractors to take affirmative action in employing and advancing employment for protected veterans. The monetary threshold here is the highest of all three laws. So VEVRA applies to federal construction contractors who have a direct government contract of $150,000 or more. And again, it does not apply to federally assisted construction contracts. So very specific to direct government contracts and a much higher monetary threshold of $150,000 or more. So two general rules, which are pretty self-explanatory, but if you are a federal construction contractor and you want to be in compliance with your EEO obligations, essentially, first things first, do not discriminate against applicants or employees based on any of the categories that we talked about protected by the laws described above. And then two, you want to take affirmative action. So ensuring equal employment opportunity without regard to race, color, religion, et cetera. And then also to employ and advance an employment, qualified individuals with disabilities and qualified protected veterans. So obviously, you know, pretty self-explanatory, but with each of these sort of general rules, there are also other obligations that come with it. Quick fact check here. I think it's important to note, you know, we get the question sometimes of I'm a construction contractor and I have one federal construction contract in, you know, one state. Am I then required to comply with OFCCP for all my other work sites in other states? And the short answer is yes. So if you are a covered contractor or subcontractor, you must comply with all of these laws at all work sites, assuming, right, that you meet those monetary thresholds. So, for example, just to reiterate this point, if you have a federal construction contract in California, you must comply with the OFCCP requirements, not only at that California work site where the federal contract is being done, but also at all of your other work sites throughout the United States. So, so long as there is one contract that triggers the need to comply with these OFCCP obligations, then that obligation gets triggered for the entirety of, of the company. Affirmative action compliance. So I think we pretty much talked through these. I'm trying to go through and pull out some of the information here that we didn't talk about. But, you know, essentially what affirmative action compliance means is that you're taking these specific affirmative actions to ensure that you're promoting equal employment opportunities for any and everyone. There are a set of 16 affirmative steps that include publishing certain policies, posting certain notices, essentially making it known that you have an affirmative commitment to equal employment opportunity and ensuring that your both applicants and employees are aware of what those obligations are. For contractors that are covered by Section 503 and VEVRA and that have 50 or more employees, as we talked about, 
The OFCCP regulations require a written affirmative action program. And obviously, there are a whole set of sections and analyses that go along with that. But if your sole coverage comes from a federally assisted construction contract, then the AAP requirement does not get triggered. So the AAP requirement only gets triggered if you have a direct contract with the government and a direct construction contract. Otherwise, the AAP requirement does not get triggered. The 16 affirmative action steps. So again, these are sort of all outlined on the OFCCP website and it's nothing surprising or or crazy. You know, they're basically 16 action steps that construction contractors are required to take from any and all aspects of the company's personnel activity. So starting from recruitment practices to training to equal employment opportunity policy and implementation, personnel operations, and contracting activities. So each of those sort of umbrella categories has a whole list of specific action items that contractors need to be aware of that sort of act like the affirmative action plans that supply and service contractors have to meet under Executive Order 11246. But for federal construction contractors, they're just more aligned with these set of steps rather than a solid affirmative action program requirement. Now, if the written AP requirements are triggered for Section 503 and VEVRA, then you have to actually then develop and maintain your written AP. So the thresholds are there. I won't belabor the points. But again, basically, you have to remember the 50 or more employees and then 50,000 or more for Section 503 and 150,000 or more for VEVRA. The one interesting point here, starting this year and beginning on February 1st, 2022, supply and service contractors are now going to have to register and then subsequently certify that they are maintaining an annual AAP. Now, this sort of requirement has not applied to construction contractors as of yet, but we do anticipate that that will certainly change and this will become sort of an entire federal contractor requirement as it relates to construction contractors as well. So all this to say, if you are subject to the requirement to develop a written AAP for Section 503 and BEVRA, then you want to ensure that you are, in fact, developing and maintaining such AAPs on an annual basis because we anticipate at some point that the OFCCP may require you to certify that you're doing so, and you certainly don't want to make a false certification there. Just quickly, if you do have to meet and develop an an AAP, as soon as that requirement gets triggered, you have 120 days from the start of that contract to go ahead and develop the AAP. You know, again, I'm sure many of you have either heard of or seen an AAP, but it's no easy feat. And it obviously takes a lot of data and and pulling together and development. So, you know, if you know that you are within that threshold, then, you know, you certainly want to ensure that everything's sort of on par to get those AAPs developed and maintained on an annual basis. So these are sort of a checklist of different things. You can appoint someone within the company to be that point person. You certainly want to draft an EEO policy. I mean, this doesn't fall within the AP requirement, but it's something that you should be doing. And then, you know, everything else there sort of falls within that obligation to put together the AP and develop it. So if you do have any specific questions about AP development, you know, certainly feel free to let me know. 
But I just want to sort of emphasize the point of, you know, ensuring that if you know that you have the requirement and you have to meet the obligation to develop an AP, that you have processes and protocols in place to do so. Required postings, listings, and notices. So on top of, you know, everything else, there are certain requirements of posting. The EEO is the law poster, which you can just, you know, download from the OFCCP website. You want to make sure that you're including the pay transparency non-discrimination provision. Usually, we tend to recommend doing it in an employee handbook. Essentially, that informs applicants and employees about their protections from discrimination under federal law, especially as it relates to discussing compensation. You want to make sure that you're sending notices to any unions with which the contractor has a collective bargaining agreement, notice to job seekers that the employer is an equal opportunity employer. So this is generally taglines and job advertisements and postings and applications and offer letters. You want to let the OCSP know that you've been awarded a construction subcontract or contract of more than $10,000. And then also the notice to subcontractors of their non-discrimination affirmative action obligations. So, you know, there's a whole list of things. Vevra also requires you to notice the appropriate employment service delivery system that you are a federal contractor and that you'd like referrals of veterans. So, you know, as soon as you know that those basic coverage thresholds have been met, then you want to ensure that you are not only meeting the basic obligations, but also doing these additional requirements. The invitation to self-identify, as many of you know. So if you are covered by EO11246 or Section 503 in VEVRA, then there are obligations to ensure that your applicants and employees are self-identifying. And there is an OMB approved form for self-ID of disabilities. The link is provided here. You want to make sure that you're using the current form, which expires in 2023. So just make sure that you're using that form and make sure that you are ensuring that your applicants and employees are self-identifying. And lastly, some additional requirements on top of everything else. It's not easy being a federal contractor, but you have to also ensure that you're filing your EO1 surveys, right? So that goes with the EOC. You're filing your VETS 4212 employment report. So that's the OFCCP's collection of data with regard to the number of veterans that you are employing. And then also the notice of employee rights under the National Labor Relations Act. So that's the notice that goes to the NLRA with regard to unions. Each of these has a specific deadline. Usually the VETS 4212 reports are due by September 30th. Last year with COVID and the pandemic, deadlines were changed a little bit. But, you know, as of this year, we anticipate that the original deadlines that we're all used to will stick this year or so. So be aware of it. You don't want to do any last minute filings or last minute trying to scramble to meet these deadlines. So just make sure that these things are in order and ready to get filed when the time comes. And compliance evaluations, I mean, these are just something to take note of. Of course, if you are subject to the OFCCP rules and regulations, then you are subject to a potential compliance evaluation by the OFCCP, which are never fun. So they can range from anything from a compliance review, which is a comprehensive sort of review analysis and evaluation of your hiring and employment practices, to a focus review, such as the Section 503 review that we talked about, to just a compliance check, right? They can come in and and just say that they want to ensure that you're maintaining records consistent with the obligations. So Obviously, being a federal contractor, 
has a lot of rules and regulations, obligations that you have to meet. And you just want to make sure that you're doing so in preparation for a potential audit or compliance evaluation by the OFCCP. So just to break it down, things to do, you want to make sure that you're posting your required posters and notices, that you have an AP if you are subject to those thresholds, that you're filing the required forms, review your advertising or recruitment methods. Outreach is a huge thing that the OFCCP looks at. So you want to make sure that you're reaching out to various organizations and, and community services to do so. It won't hurt. I know, you know, if you're a small business, maybe it's not feasible, but if you have the means to select a compliance officer or sort of an EO AP coordinator, then that certainly helps as well. And you want to be sure to sort of review your employment practices and do an internal audit as much as you can. So even if you're small, it doesn't hurt. And it certainly will help to take the time to conduct these internal audits, like a pay equity audit or a proactive pay equity audit in which you sort of evaluate and audit your practices so that if and when the time comes that the OFCCP is knocking on your door, you've already sort of made the changes and, and fixed any problems that you have before you know you get a violation of any sort. And of course, you want to ensure that you are maintaining records during the required retention periods. So just to list the best practices, at the end of the day, you want to be familiar with your organization and practices. As we talked about, try to do an internal audit annually, create a compliance checklist of things that you need to do depending on what thresholds you meet. And it certainly doesn't hurt to invest a little bit of money up front for a very thorough AP preparation service. We at Polar Mazda work with clients to develop AAPs and maintain it and make sure that the product is good and of high quality. And, you know, little things like this that can certainly help before the OCCP comes knocking on your door because it's likely inevitable that at some point you're going to have to deal with them and you want to make sure that you're prepared. So if you certainly have any additional questions, feel free to ping either Anna and I separately. We are more than happy to help out with any questions that you may have. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a wonderful day. This podcast is a Paliro Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.